Father in heaven, we thank you for the blessing of your spirit and the coming of your son and the way his grace extends to us all. I don't think we always appreciate that the way we should. Help us to do so today. In Jesus' name, amen. So if I were a dog, I would be what you would call a mongrel. Okay, I didn't say mongol. I'm not offending mongols in any way. A mongrel, a mutt. No papers on me, no sir. No fancy purebred pedigree for this guy. Just good old-fashioned Northern European madness. That's my family. I'm a jumbled up mix of a human descended from peoples who for centuries could not get along with each other. Millennia, probably. No wonder I'm so conflicted sometimes, right? I got all this stuff going on. I'm most directly formed by my German relatives. I have a picture of my German relatives. There they are. Quite an impressive-looking crowd, aren't they? Don't be fooled. They're farmers. Ernst and Maria Schefflin, my great-great-grandfather, moved his family of 12 from southwest Germany near the Swiss border to eastern Washington State. Soon after arriving, they became Seventh-day Adventists. Now, this is uh, Catherine, Katerina, my uh, great-grandmother, and Ross Patterson. That's where the Patterson name came in. Soon after arriving in the United States, the Shefflins became Seventh-day Adventists, which was a truth that has been the most powerfully formative reality in what my life has become. Now, I want you to appreciate that because I got multiple family lines, but this is the one that affects me most, and it affects me most because they joined this church and took on a part of its life, and it became formative for generations. My great-grandmother, Catherine, would be responsible for four pastors. My cousin, John, is one of them, but there was Glenn Patterson, her daughter, that's my grandpa, and then Gary Patterson, my dad, and then Jeff Patterson. Pastors are cute when they're little, just so you know. <laughs> That's why we showed it that way. There's all of us together, my grandpa Glenn, my dad. I'm down there at the bottom. That's my grandma and my sister in there. This particular family lived, as I said, in eastern Washington around a place called Farmington. And still to this day, if you went to the Farmington Church, in eastern Washington, I have a picture of it, it looks remarkably like this one, doesn't it? Just not quite as big, the Adventist A-frame. Still to this day, if you visit the Farmington Church in eastern Washington, of about the hundred people or so that will be in attendance, I'll be related to 75 of them. It's kind of a family church. But here's the thing. Even though this German family has been so formative in my life, I'm actually only about 12.5% German. On my mom's side, my grandfather, her dad, came from a dirt poor Irish family in Colorado. Now I have a picture here of his step 
mom and dad. This is my grandfather on my mom's side, stepmom and dad. Now here's how it worked out for him. Shortly after my grandfather was born, his mother died. And so his father remarried, so he's primarily raised by his stepmom. But then not too long after that, his dad died as well. And then his stepmom remarried. So by the time he was in his early teen years, neither of his parents were his birth parents. At the age of 16, he left home and forged a life as a lumberjack and a man of the forest. He's the one on the right there, one of those Irish tough guys. Kind of short, only about this tall. Forged a life as a lumberjack and a man of the forest who would cut trees during the day and then every evening make music on any instrument he could find or possibly tatting doilies for one of his five daughters. You never know what people will do in their spare time, do you? He spent his late years as an artist painting and selling pictures in the park in beautiful Leavenworth, Washington, where he and my grandma lived. Now, Grandpa Ireland, that was his last name. Any guess what heritage he was? Yeah, it's not hard. Grandpa Ireland and Grandma became Seventh-day Adventists when their oldest girls were quite young. And as a result, my mother attended Auburn Adventist Academy, where she met my dad. And now you know the rest of the story, right? But even at that, I'm only at most 25% Irish. The name Patterson is of Scots-Irish origin, as in the Scots who could never stay put in Scotland, but moved to Northern Ireland and then later moved to the New World and just kept moving and moving and moving. It's wonderful prep for life as a pastor to be Scots-Irish. You just, you move all the time. That's how it works. One time while visiting in Scotland, My dad was asked what clan our family was from, and he said we're from the clan Lamar. And the native Scot said, oh, I thought we killed all you guys. (laughs) See, my people are barbarians. That's who I come from. I have a picture of Joseph Patterson, my, uh, let's see, great-great-grandfather on the Patterson side. He's in the middle there with the beard. Now, Ross Patterson, my great-grandfather is the one on the far left there. I mean, there's also something kind of strange with that picture, isn't there? You see that strange inclusion there in the back? Well, that's what Photoshop used to look like. (laughs) Now, it's really kind of poignant what it is, is back in those days, that was a son that died, and they wanted to include him in the family picture, and so he's in the picture, even though he's not actually alive when the picture was taken. My great-great-grandfather, Joseph Patterson, a resident of Iowa at the time, before eventually moving to Alberta, Canada, got a picture of him here where he's a little younger, he joined an Iowa Cavalry Division during the Civil War and fought through North Georgia with Sherman's army before he was captured south of Atlanta on an ill-fated cavalry raid. That would be a picture not many years after that whole experience. One of the amazing things about it was my great-great-grandfather fought on a battlefield within view of the site where 150 years later I would be the pastor of the Marietta Adventist Church. I bet he wasn't thinking about that that day, but it's amazing. But as far as I know, I'm no more than 12.5% Scottish either. The other half of me, again, as far as I know, 
is English, whatever that is. With all the different people that came through England all those years, Anglos and Saxons and the people there before and the Normans and all of that. But English from too many different directions to easily recount. I've got Bakers. They look very English, don't they? I've got Wilsons. And I've got Churchills. And for the record, yes, Woodrow Wilson and Winston Churchill are distant cousins. However, I don't claim anything great from that because these are the family lines that were not particularly formative in my life. Now, I also have a picture here of my uh, Grandma Ireland. She's the one in the middle in the back there with her arms on her. I just think it's cute, so I wanted you to see her too. She was a fun grandma. Anyway, that's my family. But the larger point I want to make with all of this I'm a mongrel, and from what I can tell, I'm pretty much purebred, mixed-breed barbarian. Because <laughs> that's what those tribes were, right? I'm most likely a descendant of Japheth from Gomer and Magog and Madai and Javan and Tubal and Meshech and Tiresh, and I'm not really a descendant of Shem at all, much less any kind of son of Abraham. Now, there's... There's no long tradition of monotheism in my roots. My people were pagan polytheists. And certainly no significant deep history of law and order in my background. Nope, pretty much barbarian. That's me, the barbarian mongrel. Or, or at least that would be me. Were it not for the banner to all the people that God saw fit to raise before my people before I came along. But I'm getting ahead of myself here. Isaiah chapter 49, verse 1. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Is that a shout out to my people? Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. I think it is. I think it just might be a message to the mongrels, even to the barbarian mongrels. And is there a word for the Lord? What is it? Isaiah 49, verse 1. It's going to be a description. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing at all. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. Who is Isaiah writing about? Well, if you remember at all what we talked about last fall, this might be pretty obvious because he said, he made my mouth like a sword. Does that sound familiar to anybody? I was hidden in the quiver, God's servant, Israel, one who has struggled seemingly for nothing, yet holds on to faith and a promise. Well, here's the thing that's wonderful about being us where we are. Had we read these words before Jesus came and lived and died, it would have been practically impossible to understand them. But these words 
are a description of Jesus. And this is the father's reply to his son. Isaiah 49, verse 5. And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. He says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Now just stop and realize how unbelievable these words are. So unbelievable, in fact, that most of the Jews, even the Jews that believed in Jesus, in the days after Jesus' death, did not believe these words were true. Oh, it was easy enough to believe that the Jewish Messiah had come to save and exalt the Jews, but surely he didn't come for the mongrel barbarians. Surely not the Gentiles. You see, I believe we underappreciate the graciousness we've been shown and just assume ourselves to be worthy. But this is my word to all the rest of you mongrel barbarians out there today. It is only by grace and by no means of pedigree that we have been included in the covenant of the Lord. My people, not the chosen people. My people were the people who would have persecuted the chosen people if they just lived a little closer to them. It's a mystery, really. It was a mystery to the Apostle Paul. He points it out in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles, and then he has a thought and goes back and he says, Surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation as I have already written briefly. See, Paul says... I didn't figure this out through careful study. God had to tell me directly because this is just impossible to believe. Verse 4, in reading this then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit of God's holy apostles and prophets. What's the mystery? Here we go, verse 6. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel and members together of one body and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. This is so radical that God had to reveal it to the apostles because it was unbelievable to think we could be a part of it. So radical. What is the great mystery that astounds Paul and frankly keeps getting Paul in trouble not just with the Jews that don't believe in Jesus but gets him in trouble with the Jews that do believe in Jesus? What's the mystery? The mystery is this. The mongrels are included in the grace of Jesus Christ. 
Ephesians 2, verse 11, Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. My people, far away from God in heart and mind and action and far away from Israel geographically through the blood of Jesus have been brought near. And not just my barbarian people, all barbarian people are brought near through Jesus. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups, we could even say the many groups, one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. And this house where we are gathered today is a witness to the truth of these words. Though, likely we would have to confess, not a perfect witness. Because diversity's tough, isn't it? Because diversity means that there's going to be people around all the time who don't automatically think like my people think. And somehow, if we're going to be one people, we've got to figure out how to make that work. But in Christ, we must discover together how we are together one new humanity, reconciled to God and reconciled to each other, and having had our native hostility put to death in Christ Jesus. Verse 17, he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. So what does this mean? Well, to better understand, let's go back to the prophecy of Isaiah 49. Verse 7, this is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nations, to the servant of rulers. Kings will see you and stand up. 
Princes will see and bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. This is what the Lord says. In the time of my favor, I will answer you. And in the day of salvation, I will help you. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people to restore the land and to reassign its desolate inheritances to say to the captives, come out, and to those in darkness, be free. This is what Jesus is going to do. I will make you to be a covenant to the people to restore the land and to reassign its desolate inheritances. Now, what does that mean? When Israel came out of Egypt, they traveled to Canaan. And when the tribes arrived in Canaan, every tribe was given an inheritance. And every family within that tribe given an inheritance of a place that that family could forever call home. And no matter what happened, they could never lose it forever. Because at the end of the Jubilee cycle of 49 years, regardless if they had to sell everything, God said everything reverts back to its original owner and no one ever loses their inheritance that I give. Well, the people weren't faithful. And it would be some years after this prophecy when the Babylonians would come and take the people away from the land and their inheritances would be left desolate. But now God is saying through the prophecy that a day is coming when he will keep his covenant and restore the land and reassign the inheritances. Now the short fulfillment of that was when Israel came back from Babylon. But there's a bigger fulfillment in mind here that goes beyond the 12 plus 1 tribes of Israel. As you recall, God said it would be too small a thing to just restore Israel. Isaiah 49 verse 9 they will feed beside the roads and find pasture on every barren hill. They will neither hunger nor thirst, nor will the desert heat or the sun beat down on them. He who has compassion on them will guide them and lead them beside springs of water. Who, who's going to be led? I will turn all my mountains into roads, and my highways will be raised up. See, they will come from afar. Some from the north, some from the west, some from the region of Aswan. And as I look out at you this morning, there you are. The people of God that he has called and restored and blessed and promised an eternal inheritance in Jesus Christ. There you are. If you think about Israel, where it is geographically, how many of you come from the north? Well, I guess I come from the north. How many from the west? I guess I'm kind of west of there, depending on how you figure it. I'm probably a little technical to ask who comes from Aswan, Egypt. Probably not many of those, but who comes from the south? Who comes from the ends of the earth? Because that is where God calls us from. Verse 13, shout for joy, you heavens. Rejoice, you earth. Burst into song, you mountains, for the Lord comforts his people. 
and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. It was too small a thing for Jesus to just save the Jews. God sent him to save us too. But here's the thing. The road to Canaan is hard. Whether you're Israel literally making the trip or you're us making the trip through our lives. The road is hard from where we were to the promised land. The tribes of Israel know about this. We talked about it last week. They took this journey in a literal sense. And last week we saw how sometimes they grew weary and discouraged and they grumbled and they complained about very real problems like no food, no water, and being surrounded by hostile barbarians like my people who wanted to kill them. So much did they become discouraged that they even asked, is the Lord with us or not? Isaiah 49, verse 14. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. There it is again. It's a hard journey. And sometimes we're tempted to wonder if the Lord has forsaken us and to ask, is the Lord with us or not? Is it a question you've asked? If you have, here's your answer. Verse 15. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. Now, that was already a poignant image, even before the time of Jesus, even before the time that the Roman soldiers, which I suppose represent the closest thing to my people at the cross, this was a poignant view even before the Roman soldiers permanently engraved scars in the hands of Jesus. And Jesus says, those scars represent my people. How can I forget you when I bear the scars? So what about all our worries in this life? I believe the Lord wants to speak to us today and that he's going to speak to you and to me in the next verses that I'm going to read, though I don't know exactly what he will say to you through these verses. I don't know what these verses will mean for you. This is a moment of he who has an ear, she who has an ear, let them hear. Because here is his promise and his answer to the fear of your heart today, whatever you brought here. He guarantees that he hasn't forgotten you, indeed that he could not forget you, and here are the words of promise, a promise that extends even to the mongrel barbarians. Verse 17, your children hasten back, and those who laid you waste depart from you. 
Lift up your eyes and look around. All your children gather and come to you. As surely as I live, declares the Lord, you will wear them all as ornaments. You will put them on like a bride. Though you were ruined and made desolate and your land laid waste, now you will be too small for your people. And those who devoured you will be far away. The children born during your bereavement will yet say in your hearing, this place is too small for us. Give us more space to live in. Then you will say in your heart, who bore me these? I was bereaved and barren. I was exiled and rejected. Who brought these up? I was left all alone. But these, where have they come from? You may not understand these words fully with your ears, but your spirit within you knows what these words mean for your life. And I won't presume to tell you what they mean for you, but I'm going to read you the last verse again, verse 21. Then you will say in your heart, Who bore me these? I was bereaved and barren. I was exiled and rejected. Who brought these up? I was left all alone. But these, where have they come from? It's about being restored to your eternal inheritance in Jesus. I don't know what God is promising you, but I do know how it will all come true. Verse 22, this is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I will beckon to the nations. I will lift up my banner to the peoples. They will bring your sons in their arms and carry your daughters on their hips. There it is. That's our connection to the theme, the banner year. Who is the banner of the sovereign Lord, Jesus is the banner of the Lord. And what did Jesus say, John 12, verse 32? And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. How many people? All people. That means you and me, the mongrel barbarians. And the fact that you are here today is the first fruit guarantee of the fulfillment of the eternal promise of God. Look around you. We're here from all nations. And what will the ultimate fulfillment of our faith in his promise be? Verse 23, kings will be your foster fathers and their queens your nursing mothers. They will bow down before you with their faces to the ground. They will lick the dust at your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Now grab this last verse and take it out of here with you. Those who hope in me will not be disappointed. But it's not all complete yet. You know that, right? It's not all complete yet. Right now, we only have the partial fulfillment but the promise is sure. It was too small a thing for Jesus to just save some of the world. 
Through him, grace has come to the whole world, first to the Jew, then to the Greek, and then finally, even to the mongrel barbarians. I'll tell you what. Jesus is the banner for this mongrel barbarian. And in him I find hope and meaning and direction for living. Everything I need to make each year a banner year. Too small a thing for Jesus to just save the Jews. God has raised up from the rocks sons for Abraham. And you know what? We're the rocks. And Jesus is our banner. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do not deserve the grace that you have extended to us. For we were more like the persecutors than like your people. But you said it was too small a thing for Jesus to just save a few. And you extended his grace to us all. And to all who have believed and trusted, you have promised an eternal inheritance. We say thank you. And we say we trust in Jesus. And we say Jesus comes soon. In his name, amen.